Welcome to the Grace Point Podcast, a ministry of Grace Point Church for Scythe in Cumming, Georgia. To find out more about Grace Point Church, you can go to our website at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org. And we really haven't even opened the word that much. Yeah! All right, we are studying in the book of Mark. We're in chapter 6. We're going to be going through verses 7 through 29. So if you want to turn there, it's on page 841 in the Blue Pew Bibles, and I believe page 1000 in the Red Pew Bibles. As you're turning there, I want to invite our children who want to take opportunity of it to ages 5 to 5th grade uh, to go out the back door. We have what we call Caruso Kid Zone, which is an opportunity for them to learn about the New City Catechism question and answer that we asked today about baptism and does baptism lead to salvation? That's a beautiful question and a great lunch conversation, especially since they all got to witness a baptism. Also want to remind you quickly as we continue to turn to Mark chapter 6 that we have our family meal next week, so please plan to uh, bring some food and stay afterwards. And also we have made up these cards, which are invitation cards, the size of a business card. We have some in the back and out there. We'd love for you to take these and share these with people. Uh, The idea is that we can give people something that tells them where we're at, what time we meet, how to get in contact with us, and then on the back we also have a QR code which kind of helps them connect to all the opportunities that we have here as a church. Once you've gotten to Mark chapter 6, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to go over Mark chapter 6 verses 7 to 29, but I'm only going to read 14 to 29 right now. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus, Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Father, as we look at this text, we are reminded that trusting in you is not safe always is not free from persecution, 
And sometimes doing the right thing is not only hard, but leads us to suffer. We pray that as we open up this text, you would open up our hearts and our minds. That we not only understand what you're trying to teach us in this text, but that we hide the truth of the gospel deep in our hearts. That when we are persecuted or pushed or perplexed, we might draw on that truth. And Father, help us to work out these truths with our hands, applying to our life the truth of your scriptures. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are studying the book of Mark, and as we do before every sermon, we are reminded that context is? Yes, context is king. And what that means is that anytime we read in the Bible, we have to understand who wrote what we're reading, who they wrote it to, what the context of that letter was, what's going on there, and why that letter is written so that we can better understand exactly what it means. After all, we've all been in conversations where we walked up maybe to the water cooler and heard something and didn't have any context and totally misunderstood what was going on. So the context of our book here is we are looking at Mark, which is one of the four Gospels, the stories of the life of Jesus, and it is the shortest synoptic Gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic Gospels, and they're called synoptic because a lot of their stories line up. And so we get information from one book that we don't get in another. So, for example, we're going to find out that Herodias' daughter was named Salome. We find that out in one of the other synoptic gospels. The book of Mark was written more towards the eye of a Roman soldier. Matthew is written with a Jewish history in mind. And so there's a lot of things uh, referencing back to the way Jews celebrated that are brought into Matthew that if you weren't a Jew, you wouldn't understand. And so the idea of Mark is, hey, if you're a Roman soldier and have no background in the history of the Jewish nation, you can still understand the gospel. And the focus of the book of Mark is Christ's life. We're going to see his life, how he acts and reacts, and most importantly, we're going to see his teaching. That's the key of Mark here, is that teaching. And as he goes, wherever he goes, he does this teaching and preaching to bring the gospel to bear in people's lives. Now we see other things happen, other situations happen. We see him heal the sick, we see him cast out demons, we see him control nature, but none of those are the reason why he came. All of those only affirm his teaching and his authority. Jesus came to bring and to fulfill the gospel, the gospel that Paul puts so succinctly For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are sinners who cannot save ourselves. The only thing we can earn, the only thing we deserve, no matter how good we look on the outside, is death. But we can have eternity. We can have eternity with the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth, in a new body, rejoicing and celebrating with him through faith in Jesus. Jesus, whose life we're reading about. Jesus whose death will pay for our sins. Jesus whose resurrection guarantees the promises of God. That gospel is the core for which Jesus came. And one of the other things we've been doing as we have gone through this study is we've been talking about kintsugi pottery just as a visual representation of what the gospel is. 
Kintsugi is where we take bowls or plates that are broken and we repair them. But we don't repair them in such a way that you can't tell they were broken. Instead, they are accented so that you can see where the breaks were, which makes it all the more beautiful. We're created by the Lord to glorify him, to walk with him in the garden as Adam and Eve did. But because of sin, we are broken vessels who can't serve the purpose for which we were created. Just like a bowl that's broken won't hold water. But through the gospel, we are made whole again. And we are made whole in a way that is even more beautiful than we originally were. Because now we have Jesus. And we're able to do what Christ has called us to. And so this is the picture of the gospel that Jesus is bringing. Some of you have more breaks. Some of you have less breaks. Some of you have bigger breaks. But Jesus heals them through faith in him and trust in the gospel so that we can once again serve our purpose. That's what God is saying to us through Jesus in Mark. So far in the book of Mark, we've seen Jesus' baptism and commissioning. We saw at his baptism all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit there, just like they were at creation. We've seen Jesus sent out into the desert to undergo temptation, just like Adam did in the garden. But whereas Adam failed, Jesus did not. This is why Paul calls Jesus the second Adam. We've seen Jesus begin his ministry of teaching and preaching, bringing the gospel to bear. He also heals, casts out demons, controls nature. But again, all those are just to affirm his authority. We've seen Jesus teach on fasting and the Sabbath. We've seen Jesus call his disciples in a way that went far countercultural to all the other ways that leaders and, and rabbis were chosen. The people used to choose the rabbis, but with Jesus, he chose his disciples. And he didn't choose a homogenous group. He chose a very different group, one who wouldn't normally get together. And through them, he will teach them and train them how to send people out. We've seen Jesus talk about parables, these stories that help us to understand the truths that he is giving. And last week, we looked at how Jesus is not only continuing to grow in power, but he's also continuing to be rejected. Last week, we saw that he was rejected by his own hometown. And so far, the whole story has been focused on Jesus. This week, we're actually going to see a little bit more about the disciples. Now, we have seen the disciples, and up to this point in the story, they're kind of a bunch of flunkies. They disagree with Jesus when they should agree. They argue with him. They don't do exactly what he would expect. But now we're going to see what they are doing and how Jesus is using them. But before we do that, I kind of want to set our frame of mind right for what we're going to see throughout Mark 6. I want to ask you, have you ever gotten a gym membership with the intention of getting in shape and never gone to the gym? Or maybe you went the first week and didn't go after that. And you just think, man, that gym, they, they have to love me because I'm paying them and I'm not costing them anything. Or, or maybe you didn't get a gym membership. Maybe instead you thought, well, I'll do this at home, you know, whatever reason, you don't like to be around people, and so you got a treadmill or a Bowflex or whatever the case may be. And then after about a month and a half, it became a really nice place to hang clothes. Really expensive closet right there in the middle of your bedroom. Now, if we don't go to the gym or if we get a treadmill and we hang clothes on it, 
We don't claim to be gym rats, right? We don't do that because people are going to say, well, you, I never see you at the gym. Or, or they're going to say, how can you use your treadmill if there's clothes all over it? We don't say that, hey, I have a gym membership, therefore I am in shape and I work out all the time. Having the membership doesn't automatically give you those things. You have to use the membership. And yet, so many people profess to be Christians, but don't follow or obey Christ. Being a Christian is not a passive thing. We are not called just to show up and leave. We're called to actively spread this good news to help other people understand what the gospel is calling them to so that the Holy Spirit can call them and they too can be repaired. So far in the book of Mark, we've seen Jesus teach and preach and perform many miraculous things. But today in our text, we're going to look at the disciples and we're going to see that even though they were following Jesus, that wasn't the end of the story. They also had to do something. So we're going to look at three things today. First, we're going to look at the mission of discipleship. We're going to see that in verses 7 through 13. And then we're going to look at the danger of discipleship as we look deeper at what we just read in verses 14 through 29. And then we're going to look at what this tells us about discipleship today. So let's start by looking at the mission of discipleship. Jesus is sending his people out, verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. So now they've been following and he's been doing all the action, so he's going to send them out. I want you to notice a couple of things about the way that he sends them out. Number one, he sends them out in community. Discipleship is not a lone ranger type thing. We are not supposed to be doing this all by ourselves with no other help. He sends them out together. We actually saw this as a principle that's set forth throughout Scripture, from the idea of where there are two or more witnesses gathered, there I am also, to the idea that if you're going to witness to somebody, you need at least two people. Not only that, but he sends them out with the authority of Jesus. When rabbis uh, sent their students out, it was under the authority of what they had learned. Here, Jesus is saying, I'm giving you my authority. Now, you may be asking the question, hang on, hang on. In chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, it does not feel like these disciples are ready. And, and I would agree with you, and many commentators do as well. In fact, one of them addressed this idea about their readiness. The sending of the twelve appears premature and may catch us by surprise. For the record of the disciples to date has not been reassuring. So far, they've impeded Jesus' mission in chapter 1, they've become exasperated with Jesus in chapter 4 and chapter 5, and they've even opposed Jesus in chapter 3. Their perception of Jesus has been and will continue to be marked by misunderstanding. We're going to see this again in chapter 8. The willingness of Jesus to abide their wrong nature and behavior is further testimony to Jesus's divine humility. The sending out of these particular individuals and at this stage of their understanding of Jesus testifies to the beleaguered or to the beleaguered believers in Mark's church, so it testifies to the church that Mark is writing to, testifies to that church that indeed believers of every age that the fulfillment of the word of God depends not on the perfection of merit of the missionaries. 
but on the authoritative call and equipping of Jesus. All right, so let's sum that up. He essentially says, they've been nothing but screw-ups so far. And now he's sending them out to represent him? They've argued with him. They've said he was wrong. They've tried to push him away. And now he's sending them out to do mission, to do what he's been doing. Not only that, but he's giving them authority and power to do what he has done. And as the commentator pointed out, this was a comfort to the church that received Mark's letter and should be a comfort to us as well. We do not have to be perfect to fulfill God's missional mandate. Whew. Because none of us are, and likely every single one of us at some point in time or another has said, well, I don't want to do that because I don't feel like I'm ready to do that, or I don't think I'll be able to answer all the questions, or I'm afraid I'll get rejected, or I'm afraid they'll say something that I don't understand, or maybe they're smarter than me. Look at the disciples! Jesus sends them out after they argued with him. Jesus sends them out after they're like, don't you care about us? He still sends them out. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have a PhD in theology in order to share the gospel. You just have to love Jesus. Because after all, you're not the one that's going to determine how people respond. The Holy Spirit is the one that will work in their hearts. Not only that, but... Jesus gives them authority over spirits, which is a sign of the beginning of the reign of Christ. And so, just keep in mind, we're, we're not given the authority to heal with a touch, or we're not given the authority to cast out demons. That was for them at that time, and it was for them so that people knew they came from Jesus. All right, let's look at verses 8 and 9. So he sends out these flunkies, which is an encouragement to us because we don't have to have a PhD in order to share the gospel. Verses 8 and 9, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. All right, so this seems a little weird. Not only is he sending them out when they appear to be not ready, but he's sending them out with absolutely the bare minimums. No money even, no bread, not even a snack. He sends them out to do his work. The things that he calls them to use as he sends them out should be an encouragement to them. The four items required of the twelve are, in fact, identical to the belongings that Christ instructs the Israelites to take on their flight from Egypt. Cloak, belt, sandals, staff. Exodus 12, 11. God sent out the Israelites with those four things out of slavery, out of bondage, and brought a new era to pass, the era of his people. And now Jesus, in sending out his 12 disciples, those who have been following him and those who are going to emulate him and do what he has done, suggests that the mission of the 12 announces something as foundational and revelatory as the exodus from Egypt, and that the disciples must be as free from encumbrances as the Israelites were in order to serve God in their new venture. And so this is a hearkening back to Exodus 12. Remember, when I brought you out of Egypt, I brought you out. I provided for you. I gave you food. I taught you how to be a nation. And I brought you to my promised land. Now Jesus is saying, 
You may not feel like you're ready, but I'm sending you out in my name with my authority to bring the gospel to bear, and I am going to do something great. So Jesus is bringing forward the foundation of faith that was laid in Exodus chapter 12 and putting it on his disciples so that they can better understand their mission, bringing to mind, oh, this is all that Egypt was, or that the Israelites were allowed as they came out of Egypt. Not only is it a model from Egypt and supposed to tie us back to what happened in that story, because context is, oh, I caught some of you sleeping there. Not only is it that, but it also is encouraging the disciples to remember that God provides for them and to draw them to trust in him. So in 8 and 9, we see what he calls them out to and how he does that is very unique and very encouraging while at the same time seeming nearly impossible. Uh, Commentator Edwards says, Like the Israelites fleeing from Egypt in Exodus 12, the twelve disciples must travel lightly, lest the worldly cares blunt the urgency of the message. Like Gideon's troop with their reduced numbers before the battle of Midian in Judges 6 and 7, they must go in dependency on God. Like the birds in the air and the lilies in the field, Matthew 6, 25 through 34, they must trust in God alone who sends them. Jesus's severe instructions ensure that the 12 seek not their own advancement, but the advancement of the gospel. Jesus is taking all the encumbrances that might lead them to trust in themselves, and he's taking it away so that they have to fully rely on the Lord. And then he continues in verses 10 and 11 by giving instructions what to do when they begin this task. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So he's saying when you go to a place, and Jesus is going to send them to villages, not large metropolitan areas. When you go to a place, stay where you're welcome as long as you're welcome excuse me, and continue to preach. Paul did this. Paul would preach in the synagogue as long as they'd left him. Some weeks he only made it one week before they ran him out. Sometimes he was there a long time. In Ephesus, he was there three years. As Jesus sends his disciples out, he says, stay while you're welcome. Now, what does that imply to you? If, if you're supposed to stay while you're welcome, what is he warning them that is going to happen? Rejection is coming. Now, it may come after a few weeks of being welcome, and then, you know, they get rejected. Or it may start in the beginning. They may not be welcome at all in certain places. And they should just be in a place where they're ready to receive that. And what that does is it tells them, trust in the Holy Spirit. Trust that I, Jesus, that God will protect you and bring you into places that need this. There will be places that ignore you, but you need to trust that I am sending you out to also to places where you will be encouraged. One of my good friends in ministry says all the time, I am not the Holy Spirit. And what he means by that is he teaches and he preaches and he does all these things. And and so he spends all this time with this one family and they just don't seem to understand the gospel. And he's just beating himself on the head. He's like, what more can I do? How can I say it better? What's the best way for me to demonstrate this? And finally he realizes, wait, wait, wait. I can do all those things faithfully. But until the Holy Spirit changes their heart, 
There's nothing more I can do. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can't change their heart. I'm called to be faithful to the ministry that God has given me. And so here, where Jesus is saying, there are going to be places where you're rejected. There's going to be places that will welcome you for a while and then kick you out. Remember, you can't change their hearts. You can't change their minds by the way you speak and act. Only the Holy Spirit can draw them into God's presence. And so when you're kicked out, or when a place won't receive you, shake the dust off your feet. Now, this is something that uh, the Jews would do after they had been in a Gentile land for a while, is as they entered back in, they would shake the dust off their feet to make sure that they didn't bring any of that sinfulness in with them. And I find it really interesting because Jesus is sending the disciples into Jewish territories and villages where Jesus has already preached, and if they don't receive them, he says, shake the dust off your feet from a Jewish place. That was an action that was only done in the Gentile lands. But he's saying if they don't receive the word of the gospel, shake the dust off your feet. In fact, Edwards goes on to say this. If the disciples are rebuffed, they are instructed to shake the dust off their feet when they leave as a testimony against them. This is a searing indictment. Because Jews traveling outside Palestine were required to shake themselves free of dust from returning home so that they didn't pollute the Holy Land. So this commandment is the same as declaring a Jewish village as heathen. Jesus' reference to Israel by a Jewish or by a Gentile figure of speech has the effect of desacralizing Israel thus eliminating the presumption of salvation on basis of ethnicity, nation, or race. Even in the promised land, there will be those who reject the promised one. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, Romans 9, 6. Nevertheless, as verse 12 indicates, the purpose of the warning is not to damn people, but to induce repentance. So this is a very serious thing that Jesus is saying. As you go into Jewish villages, if they won't receive the gospel, shake the dust off because they are acting like Gentiles. Even though they're in the Holy Land, even though they're of the family of Abraham, they are acting like Gentiles. They are not obeying what God has said. And notice, Jesus doesn't say, start a riot, create a mob, get angry at them, yell at them on your blog. He says, shake the dust off. And trust that the Lord will deal with it. When we bring the gospel to bear and people get angry at us or persecute us or say no or reject us, they're not rejecting us. They're rejecting Jesus. And they can only accept Jesus when the Holy Spirit moves in their hearts. So when we leave, we should not be angry at them. In fact, when we share the gospel, we should actually expect them to not be open to it because they have no concept of their own sin. Until the Holy Spirit shows us what sin is and how sinful we are, we don't understand what sin is. So we shouldn't be angry. We shouldn't be frustrated. We shouldn't negatively deal with rejection. Instead, we should trust that God has things under control. God will deal with the judgment if necessary or the repentance if that's going to happen. We are just called to be faithful in that message. Then in verses 12 and 13, he says, So they went out, the disciples, and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now we're going to see in verse 30, they return. 
And so this story of John the Baptist kind of sandwiches uh, the disciples' mission and their return. And as they went out, they did what Jesus said. They did what he said, and they had some results that were positive, but I am sure that they also had results that were negative. The mission of discipleship is to bring the truth of the gospel of grace to bear on the lives of those God has planted you near. And if they reject it, that's fine. Trust that the Lord is in control. So now that we've looked at the mission of discipleship, let's look at some of the danger of discipleship. This deals with the story in verses 14 through 29. Like I said, we start these verses about the mission of these disciples being sent out by Jesus. And in verse 30, we're going to see them come back and tell Jesus' report on what happened. And so Mark putting the story of John the Baptist's death in the middle of that is supposed to help us understand John the Baptist's death through the lens of the disciples' journey and what they were doing. So let's look at it. Now, not only will the disciples face rejection, but it's possible that they'll face persecution as well. We saw this in the past, we see this in the present, and it will continue in the future until Jesus comes home. We pause the story of the disciples, which we'll finish in verse 30, to hear about John the Baptist and what happens to him. That's interesting, too, because there's only two passages in all the book of Mark that aren't about Jesus. And both the passages in the book of Mark that aren't about Jesus are actually about John the Baptist. We saw one in chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, and then here in chapter 6, verses 14 through 29, we see another. And both of these about John the Baptist actually are foreshadowing what Jesus is going to do and what will happen to Jesus. In John, or Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, we see John's ministry foreshadowing Jesus' ministry. John says, you know, I'm not the Christ, I'm not the one who was sent, I'm here just to pave the way for him so that Jesus then can then go and be the one that God has sent. And here in chapter 6, verses 14 through 29, we're going to see that John's death actually previews Jesus' death. Both of them are killed, are ordered to be executed by a leader who feels backed into a corner. In Herod's case, he feels backed into a corner because he's made a promise in front of all these leaders and he doesn't want to lose face inside of, in the sight of them. And in Pilate's case, he feels backed into a corner because the people are yelling for Jesus to be crucified, and so he feels like he can't do anything. And so this section of text is a foreshadowing of Jesus' death as well. It's more than just a picture of Christ's crucifixion. It shows that faithfulness to Christ's message can be dangerous. Now there are three primary characters uh, that we see in the story, and we have a bunch of secondary characters. The first primary character is Herod. Herod, this is the second Herod of four that we see in Scripture. There were a lot more, but we see Herod the Great, we see Herod Antipas, and we're going to see a couple others. Herod Antipas was son of Herod the Great. And this woman, who is his wife, Herodias, is actually his niece. So Herod was the son of Herod the Great. Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great. One of his half-brothers from another wife, from his father, had Herodias as his daughter. And so Herodias is kind of a stepdaughter to Herod Antipas. And eventually, Antipas and Herodias um, get married. That's why John says you shouldn't be this way, because he is with his brother's wife. And beyond the story, if we fast forward past what happens in Scripture, they eventually get banished uh, by the Roman uh, emperor to the nation of Gaul because they are trying so hard to advance their own political power that it looks like they're trying to underwrite Rome. And so they get banished. The second big p 
cut person we see in this story, even though he's not directly in this story, but keeps being referenced, is Jesus. We see that as Jesus has come and sends out his disciples, he's being referred to, and people are wondering who he is. And, John, and, and Herod is like, oh no, this is, this is John the Baptist come back to haunt me because I killed him. And it's interesting, too, what we see about Jesus is that despite his fame with, you know, he's Elijah, he's John the Baptist, he's a prophet, that doesn't necessarily lead to worship or trust in him. There's just, there's awe, there's like, whoa, but there's no faith in him. Lots of people understand that he is committing or doing miracles, but they're not turning that into trust. And the other thing I want you to notice is that... uh, (laughs) It's, it's really interesting, particularly with his rejection at Nazareth and his rejection by his family. Herod actually thinks more of Jesus than his family did, and Herod thinks more of Jesus than his own hometown did. He is fearful of Jesus. He recognizes that Jesus has power. So we have Herod, we have Jesus, and then we have John the Baptist, who, again, doesn't get to participate much in this story, but is a key figure that the story revolves around. He publicly opposed Herod's marriage to Herodias as wrong. Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, both explicitly list this as a wrong thing to do. And John comes out showing the holiness of God and saying, you are not supposed to do that. This is wrong, which of course leads to his eventual death. All right, so let's get to the story. What is this section of text that we read about? Because of John's moral preaching... And his accusation against Herod and Herodias, Herodias is holding a grudge against John the Baptist. She is trying to figure out a way to kill John, but Herod respects and, and fears John, and, and he just he's fascinated by John. Now, he fears John because he's, he's afraid that uh, by killing John, he may create a revolt. And he also fears John because he recognizes that John is a holy man. And while he doesn't perfectly understand what John has to say, because the text says he's perplexed by it, he knows and recognizes the power that is there within John. And so we get to Herod's birthday party, and there are a lot of dignitaries that come to Herod's birthday party. There's politicians, there's military leaders, there's the wealthy from the community, and Salome, Herodias' daughter, dances. Now notice this is Herodias' daughter, not Herod's daughter dances for all those uh, people there and pleases the crowd, so much so that the crowd is riled up and Herod says, yes, that was great, I'll give you whatever you want. And Salome uses this to get Herodias' wish. Now, it's kind of sad when we read this story because Salome is kind of a pawn in this bigger game. Salome doesn't get anything that she wants. Instead, she's being manipulated by her mother so that her mother can get what she wants through Herod. Herodias understands that she basically has to entrap Herod in order to get John the Baptist to be killed. And so now, she asks for John's uh, head. She is given John's head. And so this great birthday celebration, instead of ending wonderfully celebratorily, ends with great sorrow. We read that Herod was not happy that he had to do this. Verse 26, and the king, that is Herod, was exceedingly sorry. He was manipulated into doing exactly what he didn't want to do. Now, why was he in prison and why was Herodias going after John the Baptist? 
because he was faithfully preaching the word of God. He was faithfully bringing Leviticus 18 and 20 to bear in Herod's life, trying to draw Herod into holiness. And instead of Herod being drawn into holiness and drawn into the presence of the Lord, John's faithfulness, John's zeal for God, gets him killed. Discipleship is not always going to be easy. So we've looked at the mission of discipleship and the danger of discipleship. How does this text apply today? Hopefully, none of us go to any birthday parties like Herod's because that is a dangerous type place. So knowing that we don't sit in that context, what are we supposed to take out of this text? Well, first, even though Jesus calls his disciples on mission, gives them authority, and then also allows them to cast out demons and heal people, we don't have that special spiritual authority. We are still sent out on mission from Christ to share the gospel. When told, hey, the Lord wants you to share the gospel. The Lord wants you to evangelize. The Lord wants you to disciple. What is your internal reaction to that? If you're anything like me, it's like, uh, I'm not ready. I'm afraid somebody's going to ask a question that I don't have the answer to. I'm afraid I'm going to be rejected. All these kind of things. But this story should be an encouragement to us. Because we know, we've seen those disciples were not ready. And Jesus still sent them out. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be perfectly prepared. In fact, one person said, a genuine call to ministry always calls us to that for which we are not adequately prepared. Because if we were completely adequately, adequately prepared, then who would we be trusting in? Ourselves and our own work and our own ability. Instead, by going out where we're not adequately prepared, we have to trust in the Lord. We have to trust in what he is doing in and through us. Well, not only that, but as we go out, we are called to demonstrate Christ. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 calls this being a living letter. Turn with me there. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, page 965 in the Blue Pew Bibles. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul, in speaking to the Corinthians, says this in verses 2 and 3. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. The disciples were not great. The disciples were not perfect. The disciples were not ready. And yet, they had been around Jesus enough to reflect who he was, to be able to do the things that he did. As a disciple on mission, a disciple of Jesus on mission, we are called to love others, to share the gospel, and to trust people to God. That's not just those who listen and follow, but that's those who reject us as well. Trust that God will deal with them. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the gospel. 
So as we are on mission, as we are sharing what God has done in our life and what the gospel says and how great the the Bible is for teaching us and, and directing us, we are to be living letters demonstrating the life of Christ. We are called to be on mission. And then we also have to remember that there are dangers associated with what we're called to. There are dangers associated with being on mission. Not just simple rejection, but it is possible that we could be arrested. Jesus was uh, arrested. John the Baptist was arrested. Paul was arrested. It's possible that we could be persecuted. We probably haven't experienced that here today, but we have brothers and sisters across the world who meet in secret, who have been imprisoned, who have been beaten, who have been killed because of their faith. Whether or not we are persecuted or oppressed or whatever, we are called to trust in the hope of the gospel, to remember in easy times and in hard times that God is remaking us, to remember in easy times and in difficult times that God has called us to himself, to remember when things are bad and when things are good that the Lord loves us, and one day we will be with him. One of the most encouraging texts in all of Scripture is Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That text says all the suffering and pain that we have because of sin will be taken away. God will reverse the effects of sin. It may be another 2,000 years before that happened, or it may be in the middle of lunch. But one day, God will draw us to himself. And with that in mind, we can suffer. With that in mind, we can be persecuted and trust that God's plan is working. So this text reminds us that we are called to be a disciple, not to be passive, but instead to be actively seeking the Lord, not just in name, not just buying a gym membership, not just buying a Jesus membership, but working out our faith with fear and trembling. Colossians 1, 9 through 14, we read this morning as our call to worship says this, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We are called to trust in the Lord, to not just claim Christ, but to demonstrate Christ, to be a disciple, a broken vessel remade, sent out to share his glory, to share his love, and to help others see who he is. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that as we 
meditate on this text as we think about the ways that you have called us, you would continue to draw us into your presence. We pray that you would help us to remember when we're tempted not to pursue you that we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be totally prepared, able to answer every question because you've given us the Holy Spirit. And Jesus himself sent out his disciples when they were not ready in the way that we would say they should be ready. Father, help us to be living letters and a living example of who Christ is, always reflecting him, whether in good times or in bad, and remembering that we are called to love you and demonstrate you to this lost and dying world. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. We pray that you are drawn closer to God and encouraged to be in the Word. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org.